Matthew 13, and we're going to read two different passages in that chapter, verse 24 to verse 30, and then we're going to skip to verse 36 to verse 43. So in, in Matthew 13, 24 to 30, Jesus now is sharing his second uh, parable, uh, the parable of the, of the wheat and the, and the tares, and then he went back and explained what that parable mean later on in uh, verse 36 all the way to verse uh, 43. That's why we're reading these two passages. So here is what um, Jesus said. This is from the NIV, Matthew 13, 24 to 30, and then 36 to 43. Jesus told them another parable. Last week we spoke about the parable of the sower. That was the first uh, parable that Jesus said in Matthew 13. Now, parable number two. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who uh, sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weed also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in the field? Where then did the weed come from? He answered, or he replied, An enemy did this. The servant asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? Verse 29. No, he answered, Because while you are pulling the weed, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in the bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barns. And then we're going to pick up from verse 36, <clears throat> the interpretation of that parable. Then he left the crowd, Jesus left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parables of the wheat in the field. Verse 37, he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. The enemy and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of age and the harvesters are angels. So Jesus went almost not every item he explained, but he told us what most of the items in the parable actually means. And now verse 40, he gonna do his own commentary on that parable and uh, the, the symbolism in it. Verse 40, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all those who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him Amen. hear. Amen. Very, I really didn't pay much attention to that parable before. I, I mean, it's, it's easier when you read it, simple to understand, so you don't pay much attention to it. But this week, 
as I'm studying it, it's actually pretty heavy and it has a lot of theological um, points that we need to understand. So let me just highlight a few things that we learned from that parable. Number one, this parable is unique to Matthew. You'll not find this parable anywhere else, not in Luke, not in, in Mark, obviously not in John. Actually, John has no parables at all. So this uh, parable is very unique to Matthew and to his gospel. There are so many other passages that are extremely unique to Matthew. That's one of them. The point number two that I want to share with you here is that, again, in the Synoptic Gospel, we don't see an explicit claim of divinity by Jesus. Never see that Jesus saying, I am equal to God or anything like that. However, we always see these implicit claims of his divinity. And in our passage today, our parable today, is one of these um, examples where Jesus is implicitly implying that, implicitly saying that he is equal to God the Father in so many ways. And we read that when he is doing the interpretation of that parable in verse 40. When he says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned uh, in the fire, so it will be at the end of age, the Son of Man. Who's that Son of Man? Jesus, Jesus obviously. He always referred to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, this, this title of Jesus, the Son of Man, actually is rooted from the book of Daniel. That's the first time we read about the Son of Man uh, in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. The way I simply understand what does that title mean is that Jesus was saying he is simply just like us in every possible way. He's the son of man because he is fully man. Amen. And in the same manner, we can also understand the title son of God. What does it mean that Jesus is the son of God? It doesn't mean that God has begot Jesus at some point. Therefore, Jesus is his son. It just says that Jesus is fully God. The same way we understand the term son of man, that Jesus was fully human in every aspect. We also, in the same manner, can understand the title son of God, that Jesus was fully God in every manner, exactly God in his nature. In our story, in the way Jesus explained that parable, he set himself up to be equal to the Father in many ways. First of all, we, say, we see that he has sent whose angels? His angels or the Father's angels? His angels, right? Now, who's, the angels generally belong to God, right? Only God can speak of the angels and say, these are my angels, right? Because God is the one who created them. Yet here we see that Jesus is referring to the angel as his own angels. And it says that he sent his angels to collect the righteous into his kingdom. Now, we always read about the kingdom of God in the scripture. But now we see that this kingdom is also the kingdom of Jesus, the son of God. So there are co-equal when it comes to that kingdom. And I think Paul referred to that. I think it's in... Um, Ephesians, I think. Let's actually look real quick for that verse. Um, give me a minute. Let me look it up. <clears throat> I think it's in Ephesians 5, if I remember correctly. Never thought about that verse before. Ephesians 5. Um, right. So Ephesians 5, 5. If you uh, quickly can flip there with me or I can just read it for us. Ephesians 5, 5. 
for of this you can be sure no immoral impure or greedy person uh, such a person is an idolater, uh, idolater has any inheritance in that kingdom of Christ and of God. This is what Paul said in Ephesians 5.5. 5. So it's kind of like make the kingdom belong to both the Son and the Father at the same time. And then it says this, that Jesus will send his angels and they're going to remove all the stumbling blocks and those who are acting or live lawlessly, those who are sinners. And that is probably an allusion to Sophaniah, the book in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, Sophaniah chapter 1 verse 3, when we see that God will send his angels and they're going to do the exact same thing. They're going to remove all the stumbling blocks and those who are acting lawlessly. Um, the phrase in Hebrew is a little bit complicated to understand, but the New King James Version reads it this way. I will consume, this is what the Lord says, I will consume man and the beast, I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked, says the Lord. So the, the phrasing from the King James or the New King James is almost identical to the way Jesus quoted it here in, in Matthew chapter 13. But again, this is a difficult phrase in Hebrew to know the exact meaning. The Septuagint, for example, reads this. Let men and cattle be cut off. Let the birds of the air and the fish of the sea be cut off. And the ungodly shall fail. And the ungodly shall fail. And I will take away the transgressors from the face of the land, says the Lord. So it's not word for word, but it's definitely the same point that Jesus was referring to here in, uh, in Matthew chapter 13. The NIV, which usually I, I like it and usually uh, gives us a very good idea of what the original meaning says, reads this. I will sweep away both man and the beast. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. Hey. So again, it depends on how you read it or what is the original Hebrew means but the point is still valid that what Jesus said he will send his angels to remove the stumbling block and the wicked that's definitely if not a quote it's definitely an allusion to Sophaniah 1 3 when God himself is removing the stumbling blocks and um, and the wicked from his way so over and over here we see that Jesus is setting himself up to be the ultimate judge which is obviously a function belong only to God. Amen? So the implicit claims of divinity here is pretty strong in that parable of how Jesus is making himself equal to the Father. Now, one more theological point we need to discuss here. Um, in verse 40, let's actually read verse 40 together. Or I can just read it for us. Verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of age. The Son of Man will send his angels and, um, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all those who do evil. So here Jesus is drawing a parallel between how the weed is going to be burned and how the sinners will be punished. Now... The word that Jesus used here for burned in Greek is kata, 
katakeo, which literally means to be burned up, to be consumed with fire. So that might lead some to, to conclude that if Jesus is making the destruction of the wicked very similar to the destruction of the weed, and if the weed will be utterly consumed, not exist in eternal self-conscious status, therefore maybe Jesus here is saying that those who are not right with him, the wicked one, will also just ultimately be consumed, but there was no eternal torment. Now, this logic is faulty, and the Greek doesn't really support that. Why? Because when Jesus continued, if you see how he made that exact um, interpretation, if you continue to read in verse 42, they will throw them, that is the evil ones, the wicked ones, those who do evil, verse 42, they will throw them into the blazing fire and there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. They will throw them in the blazing furnace and there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Now the word that Jesus used for blazing furnace or the furnace that is burning with fire is a word that is usually used in reference to a smelting oven or a kiln where where the metal is is being melted and it can be shaped to whatever form they want so the idea here is that Jesus is referring to a furnace where actually elements do exist in that furnace and then they ultimately can come out Jesus used another word in other incidences, which is the word oven, uh, which usually to bake things. And there's a couple of examples for that. But Jesus opted not to choose that word when he described the destruction of the wicked. He used a different word, a furnace, where things actually do exist and not ultimately be consumed in that blazing furnace that is used to melt and uh, shape metal. Right. Not to mention that, right after Jesus said that, Jesus said they will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there. Where is, what is there? Where there? What is that? The, what is that? The, the furnace, right? Inside that furnace, Jesus said, where inside that furnace there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus is telling us here that within that furnace, when people are being thrown into that furnace, in it there will be conscious torment, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is not outside of that furnace, it's while they're in that furnace, it's not they're going to be consumed and then while they're being consumed, there will be the gnashing of teeth. And after they're gone, they're gone. No, it is while they are in that furnace, um, there will be constant weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we're just a lot of uh, theological bits and pieces here. Now, let's talk about the whole point here of that parable. The parable, as we just read, it talks about a good farmer who owns the land, who goes out, plants seed, but then his enemy comes after him while nobody is watching and he plants wheat. And then nobody noticed, nobody can tell the difference. Look at verse 26. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. 
So it seems like for the longest time, while the plants are still growing, nobody can tell the difference between the wheat and the weed until everything now is bringing forth its grains and now you can tell the difference. So the servants came to the master and said, what is going on? You planted good seed, where are the weed coming from? The master said, you know what? Uh, the enemy must have said it. The servant said, oh, can we go out and unplug it? And said, no, don't do that. Uh, we'll just wait at the day of harvest. Would Jesus explain that parable? He's talking about almost the same identical thing. How even within the disciples, even among his disciples, there can be the same kind of groups of people. There can be those who are good disciples and those who are not real disciples. And they're going to be mixed together until the day of harvest, which Jesus said that is the end of the age, which is the day of judgment. You guys are with me? So the ultimate separation between the wheat and the weed will not be fulfilled until the day of judgment. Now, let me give you a little bit of a background about the agriculture concept here. So <clears throat> weed and wheat, they're actually very similar plants to each other. And you cannot actually tell them apart at all. And the only way you can tell them apart is when the grains start coming out and then you're going to notice that the weed's grain is actually much smaller than the wheat. So they're similar in so many ways until it comes to the almost final stages when they're about to be harvested and now you can set them apart. Now you can tell which one is the wheat and which one is the weed. When wheat and wheat are planted together, the roots so tangled to tangle together to the point that it is impossible to separate. That's why the master say, don't get the weed out, because if you do the weed out, because the roots are so tangled with the weed, you're gonna end up killing the wheat as well. Yeah. So just leave everything till the day of harvest when you're actually harvesting everything. So you see here that concept where even within the same field, there are both good seed and there is bad seed. There are real, real fruit, real grains, and there are the weed, which is actually poisonous, poisonous seed. And what Jesus was saying here is pretty much what, in a way, similar to what he said in the parable of the sower. Remember that? When the sower threw the seed on the rocky ground and then it sprung out quickly. And for a while it appeared like this seed is just as good as the seed that came that fall on the good soil. Jesus is saying something very similar here. That even within the kingdom of God, not everybody who's appears to be part of that kingdom is really part of that kingdom. You guys are with me? From the outside, you might not be able to tell the difference. You cannot tell if this is a real disciple or this is a fake disciple. You cannot tell that from the outside. It's only when it comes to the day of judgment, the day of harvest, that's when you ultimately gonna tell who was a real disciple and who was a fake disciple. Now, I don't know about you, but that's yeah. pretty scary exactly. concept. That in our church or in the church in general, you can have people sitting in the pews or even ministering and preaching and doing, because remember, they look the exact same thing. You cannot tell them apart until the day of judgment, right? So that's pretty scary. Yeah. That you can be within the same church, within the same family of believers, and you have some people there that are not 
even Christian. They're not even true disciples of Christ. And from the outside, it is impossible to tell the true disciple from the fake disciple. Now, this is kind of scary stuff. And that theme is actually pretty common in Matthew, where we see over and over again some incidences where it seems like there are fake disciples mingled and just embedded among the, the real disciples. For example, when we see the parable of the man who wanted to throw a, a, um, a wedding for his son, everybody was in. Those who have the wedding garment were in, and those who were not having the wedding garment were in as well. Everybody was recruited into that wedding, um, into that wedding feast, right? So it appears from the outside that, hey, everybody is going to the same feast. Everybody's enjoying the same feast. Still, the Lord of that uh, celebration come and he starts separating the one who doesn't have the wedding garment on. We also read about um, the, the, the versions that were 10 versions. Some were foolish and some were wise. The, the 10 of them are waiting for the groom to come in. And when the groom came in, now you can tell which one is the wise versions and which one was the foolish versions right and um you also read another example in in matthew chapter 21 about a man who has two sons in his household one of them the father came and said hey i want you to go work in my field one of them said yes i will go but he ultimately did not go and the other one said no i will not go but he ultimately went and did the will of his father now jesus in his explanation of that parable said that the prostitutes and the tax collectors will come into the kingdom of god but the pharisees and the scribes will not what jesus was saying here is this while everybody appears to be under the same house under the same roof the house of god the pharisees and the prostitutes ultimately will do the will of god and repent while the what the prostitutes and the tax collectors will do the will of god and ultimately repent while the pharisees and the scribes who know the scripture ultimately will reject the will of god and they will turn away do you guys see that? Over and over again in the book of Matthew, you see that theme that there can be people in that church, in the body of Christ, into the kingdom of God, who appears like they're children of God, who look like the real children of God, but they're not mm. true Christians. They're mm. not true children of God. I don't know about you, but that's pretty scary, isn't it, right? Because even in the book of Hebrews, when we were studying Hebrews, it's the same principle the same idea some people can have experiences with the holy spirit can have some sort of relationship with god but it's not real and they ultimately will fall away when they are being persecuted only only those who are truly genuinely born again of god will remain and will stay now two things here well while we're closing in the next few minutes on one hand, I don't want you to be scared if you know that you are a child of God, that you are one of the fake people who are not really children of God. But the flip side of that, I don't want you to have a false assurance that you are a child of God when you're not a child of God. You guys are with me? So it's a fine line that you need to walk. So which one is it? Am I the real or am I the fake person? Well, it's really simple. It all comes down to this. Have you had a real encounter with Jesus. Have you had a life transforming 
experience with the living Christ. The Bible says, if anyone in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. If Jesus has come into your heart and if Jesus has changed you 180 degrees and you're a brand new person, then you are a child of God. Now, the flip side of that coin is the fact that you are in the church, the fact that you even preach and minister just like myself, the fact that you're living a moral life, the fact that you're trying to be a good person, you add all that together, that does not make you a child of God. You guys are with me? Being a child of God only happens when you have a living encounter with the living Christ and your life will be changed once and for all. Amen? So... The people, for example, in Matthew, who stand with Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, you know, how come you say we're not your disciples? You know, we did miracles, we did this, we did that, and you're telling us that we're not your children? How, how so? These people were genuinely deceived. They were genuinely having that fake assurance that there are children of God when they weren't. You guys are with me? But the idea here for me is this. It is not that they encountered Christ in, in a genuine and a real way and their life has been absolutely radically transformed and then at the end of time Jesus tricked them. He gave them a false experience so that ultimately he can throw them into hell. You guys are with me? It is not that. These people were genuinely not aware of what it means to be a child of God. They never repented of their sins. They thought that just by being being in church by being moral by just acting and looking like everybody else in that church that makes them children of God when they actually aren't children of God you guys are with me so I don't want to make Jesus look as if he's tricking people because that's not the case and I don't want you to doubt your salvation if you have a true genuine life transforming experience with Christ but the flip side of that being in church Doing the good deeds, speaking Christianese and having the lingo down doesn't make you a Christian either. Amen? And there are people who are being like that just in the parable that we're reading here. They appear like they're part of the kingdom of God when in fact there are poisonous weeds. And ultimately in the day of judgment they will be cast out into that burning, blazing furnace. Amen? Let me close with that thought. Again, I keep using this incident, this example, because I feel like it's easy and it's practical and we all can relate to it. Let's just use the example of marriage again. I, I keep using it because it's very practical. Again, seven years ago, I told Katrina that I'm gonna commit my life to her, right? That for sickness, for health, for richer, for poorer, whatever comes our way, I'm 100% committed to her. Now, if Two, three years down the road, or any, any married couples, two, three down the road, one of these spouses start not living by the vow that they took. They start going around, they start cheating, they start just doing all kinds of uh, things that actually broke the vow that they made. Question is, did they mean that vow when they made it? Was that a real commitment or was that not a real commitment? Honestly, this is just semantic and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Maybe when they were in the wedding day, they're just so overwhelmed with emotions and feelings and they said stuff that they thought at that time that they actually mean it. But when the rubber hit the road and when things start getting tough, they actually said, you know what? No, I don't want to do that. I'm out of here, right? Or maybe they're actually, they were actually 
actually purposefully deceiving the other person. They have zero intentions of like being committed to the other person. They just said what they need to do in order to get married because they have ulterior motives. Either way, the fact is, because when it gets harder, when the rubber hit the road, they bailed out on the commitment that they made, therefore this commitment wasn't real. You guys are with me? Because when you say, I'm going to stick with you no matter what, and then when matter what start happening, you start getting out of it, then you really didn't mean it when you said that. You might have been deceived thinking that you'll do it, but you're actually never going to actually able to do it. You guys are with me? And that's what I'm trying to say. It is not that... Again, time will tell if your commitment was real or not. I cannot, I don't know your heart, and I cannot speak to your heart. I cannot tell you you're a child of God or not, and I, knowing you, probably you guys are all are, but I cannot speak to your heart. You know your heart. You know your experience with Christ. I don't. You guys are with me? From what I see, you all look good to me, right? <laughs> you all look like you're born-again Christians from what I see, and you probably are. My point is, when you made that commitment to Christ, if you really meant it, if you really say to Jesus, I will follow you no matter what comes my way, and even today, you still can say the exact same commitment with confidence, Jesus, I don't care what it costs me to follow you, I am following you no matter what, I'm going to live by your rules no matter what, if that is the commitment of your heart, if that's the desire of your heart, then you don't have to worry about your salvation. But if you didn't mean it back then, I don't know your heart, you know your heart. If you didn't mean it by then, if today you still cannot make that commandment to say, Jesus, I, I want to follow you, but, you know, maybe there's some incidences like persecution or death or poverty, poverty or something like that. In these cases, if following you means I have to be poor, I have to, whatever, suffer deeply, maybe I shouldn't really follow you, I'll try to compromise a little bit then then you need to reevaluate your commitment to Christ because there are wheat inside the church among the wheat which are true disciples of Christ. You guys are with me? Pretty scary, pretty scary parable actually. Let's close our eyes and pray.